Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, we're finally getting the stuff I like. <laughs> Course is almost done. Um, so we're going to talk about comparative cognition, uh, or comparative psychology, if you want to call it that. Uh, I prefer the term comparative cognition because it's the study of animal cognition and the comparisons between species. So we're going to talk about comparative cognition, but also just animal cognition in general. I really do wish we had a course in this. We've tried it as a special topics course twice. Once it got canceled, the other time it had 11 people. I just don't think there's enough. I guess I'm not getting people excited enough about this stuff. It's my fault, damn it. Okay. Some of you have seen some of this stuff before. In evolutionary psych, for example. Comparative psychology is as old as psychology. In fact, Thorndike, when he was doing that original stuff with the puzzle boxes, he designed the puzzle box so he could see if he could figure out which animal was the smartest. That's what he was doing. And then he went, wait, this cat stuff's pretty cool. I'll just stick with the cats for now. And then he went on and moved over to uh, doing educational psychology. Wasting his career. Um, well, I shouldn't have said that part out loud. Uh, that's not true. He was very influential in educational psychology. So people have been wondering which animal is the smartest animal for a very long time, even before that. You can go back and read Aristotle and Plato when they're talking about this. This is something people have wondered. Right? We know that we're smart. We have, I mean, unless you're all mindless automatons, I know that you all have cognitive capabilities because I know I have them. Right? So even before psychology existed, you could think about that. Then you wonder, what's going on inside uh, Fido's head? And is it the same as what goes on inside my head? Is there anybody have a dog named Fido ever? No, just cartoons. <laughs> you do? That's great. No, I don't anymore. Oh, but that's great that you did. I'm glad someone did it. Because <laughs> I thought it was a cartoon dog name only. I want. I love that. Very, I shouldn't have got so excited. Sorry, guys. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> a little weird. Sorry. <laughs> um, so people have looked at things like, you know, okay. A lot of these are phenomena that some of you guys will know about, at least from intro. If you, I know a couple of you have took memory with me a couple of years ago, you know about these things. Serial position effects, right? So you remember the stuff at the beginning of the list and the end of the list, but not as well in the middle. You know that. That's a, that's a thing in cognitive psychology. Short-term and long-term memory. Sure. You know. So people are looking for these things. The same with these phenomena. And they've been looking at them in rats and pigeons. Okay. I would say that maybe that's got some sense to it. There's going to be some phenomena that are going to exist that, again, like I said about, uh, you know, classical and opera conditioning and habituation, they're, going to, they're all just, they're, have some similar characteristics. Perhaps we should expect things like this to show up because we know they show up in us. But there's an implicit question there. Now, it's implicit usually. Sometimes it's actually explicit, or it was. Okay. And the question itself is, can rats do what humans do? Which kind of gets at this curiosity people have had going back to since, ever since people started thinking about thinking, which goes well before psychology. Sort of, I know, like I said, I know you guys think but do I know that Rover thinks? There's another cartoon dog name. 
And a dog named Rover. Cassidy's got a new dog named Rover now? No? Okay. Okay. And on the surface, this almost sounds like a sensible question. Note that I'm setting up what we like to call a straw man. <laughs> um, it almost seems sensible. And some of the things, I'm not saying the data are good that have come out of some of these experiments. Something's great. And I'm not saying that it's not even sensible to look for things like a serial position effect. I think that's probably okay. Why wouldn't memory work that way in other species? See, like, I mean, the basis for this question, though, is that there's some sort of ladder, and we're the pinnacle of it. I wonder if rats can do what people do because people are awesome. That's, that's implied, and in fact, sometimes, you know, up until this is in the 60s, I'm bringing you through some of the history of this stuff just because it's important to understand where this stuff comes from. This is, remember I was talking, when I was talking about um, behavioral ecology and animal learning and how nowadays psychologists and zoologists work together pretty closely in that kind of work or about how, but how also they still miss stuff from each other, right? I talked about Tenkate's stuff with the hybrids and it was just generalization gradients and it wasn't really a new discovery. And again, I'm not saying anything bad about Carlton Cottage. Um, certainly doesn't believe there's an evolutionary lab. Campbell and Hodos in 1969 wrote this great paper called Where is the Comparison in Comparative Psychology? The Scala Natura and blah, 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 blah. I forget the rest of the title. I've cited it a lot, but I forget the rest of the title. So this is the idea, right? This is the... Not the way evolution works, but people, a lot of people think this. There's a ladder. Tops people, then above that you got angels, and then God. Right? That's, that's the way it works. And below, you go all the way down, I don't know, slime mold, I guess is probably, no, probably bacteria. Yeah, probably bacteria. But everything wants to be human somehow. You know, it's, no, it doesn't work that way, right? It just simply doesn't work that way. And you did see, in fact, stuff that almost looked like, like literally in print, and I'll mention something about this in a second, but actually written down in papers that people said things like this. They don't they go anymore. They now know some biology. And I'll tell you, when you end up, if you did end up going and doing this kind of stuff, if you went to grad school and did comparative cognition, animal cognition, you wouldn't know, you would feel sometimes a lot more at home with the biology department the zoology department and you do a lot with the psychology department. Psychology getting a lot more biological, but you feel a lot of sort of kinship with people that are in biology. Right? I was like in class or in a meeting one day uh, we were talking about stuff and Brandon Champ, you know Brandon in biology. He said, Dave, are you a psychologist or a biologist? I said, depends on the moment. She sort of changes. So it doesn't work that way, right? There's no ladder, there's no goal. Just evolution is. It's a tree. Here's a better question. What's driven some species to be able to solve a certain kind of problem? 
So in other words, or what selective pressures, if you want to use evolutionary terms, what selective pressures have driven the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms? Okay? That's a different kind of way of thinking. It's not, can rats do what people do? It's not, can pigeons do what rats do? It's, what kind of problems do rats have to solve in the world, in their evolutionary history? What kind of problems do they have to solve? And what would we expect them, kind of cognitive mechanisms would we expect? So asking which species is the smartest is kind of a silly question. I can certainly say that there's, there's a thing, I think Sarah mentions this in her little book, there's human exceptionalism. There is something pretty exceptional about humans. You know, you take, if you took, uh, I don't know, let's say a whole bunch of lions, they wouldn't last long in this kind of weather. Probably wouldn't last long. If you took a whole bunch of Lab rats is another great one. I, I love when animal liberation people want to liberate lab rats. Where are they going to put them? They get eaten almost immediately. They're stupid lab rats. They've been bred as lab rats. Right? Yeah, lion was probably not a very good example because it's like this alpha predator thing. How about hippos wouldn't last long up here? I don't think. I think they'd have some trouble. Giraffes would be cool, though. They'd be screwed. I can see them slipping on the ice very easy. Well, it wouldn't just be that. <laughs> the, the, the trees, they don't have leaves on them anymore. Oh, I'm really tall. I can eat these pine needles. These are horrible. <laughs> Inside of my mouth's all screwed up. Yeah, so giraffes wouldn't last long. I don't think in, in like, if we brought giraffes to, to, to Yellowknife, they just said, run free, giraffes. That would be a mistake. I think some of the polar bears would like it. <laughs> hey, look, dinner, exotic food, you know. We're eating African tonight. Because uh, <laughs> that's how polar bears act. They, they talk. I don't know what was going on there, but I think the polar bears would like it, that's all I'm saying. So this is a silly question. It's kind of like asking why can't people fly by flapping their arms? Because you look at it, well, that's stupid. Well, birds can do it. Why can't people do it? Now, again, humans are pretty exceptional. What we do is we invent airplanes. Like, there's something pretty special about people. And there's no other animal on this planet that actually asks those questions, that asks questions like these. Sadly, it turns out this is now a dead link. Uh, the Discovery Channel asked years ago, a couple of years ago, they used to have this site called exn.ca. It's gone. Um, they asked, uh, remember they used to have a show or like a special thing on, you know, the, you know the, what's, what's the show called? What's it called? The one with uh, their like nightly science news show. I forget what it's called. I don't watch the Discovery Channel much anymore. It's mostly just stuff about the deadliest catch and Shark Week. Most of that stuff's made up. Are there sharks in Lake Ontario? Tune in to find out. Of course not, idiot. <laughs> so, not much on 
on the Discovery Channel anymore. But I will say that they used to be a lot more into science, and they used to have questions. People would, would, would ask questions, and then they'd call scientists and ask them for the answers. And one of the questions was, what's the smartest animal? So they contacted me, and I think they contacted me because they were looking for Canadians, and my name starts with a B. I, I don't know, it wasn't nothing special. There's a list. Bob Cook at Tufts University in Boston maintains a list of scientists who study animal cognition, and I think I'm the first person in Canada that you see. I think that's probably why they called, called me. I'm not famous, really. I've done some pretty good stuff, but I'm not famous. So my answer was, that's a stupid question, <laughs> uh, except for people. That's a kind of a silly question. And I said, you know, the Clark's Nutcracker can store 30,000 seeds in a 40-kilometer radius and recover 25,000 of them six months later. That's pretty impressive. The person says, yeah, that really is. Are they the smartest animal? I said, I've never seen one build a civilization or drive a car. <laughs> right? So it's a silly question. It's really sad that's gone because I used to love going just that that was there. I mean, this stuff's not supposed to go off the internet. It's supposed to be there forever. But you see, that the point I was trying to make there was that's pretty cool. They can do that, but <clears throat> we don't do that, but we don't have to do that. And neither does a pigeon because pigeons don't store food. They don't have to do that, do they? Whenever, there's, whenever I find paper clips, I can't help but do this and wreck them. I, it's a thing. It's compulsive. It's a problem. I don't know why I do it. So how do we do a comparison then? If And what kind of questions do we ask? Okay? So how are you going to compare species on intelligence? If, and that's what this is. It's compared psychology is really looking at, on the grand scheme of things, the evolution of, of intelligence. Okay? So let's say we compare two species on some task. So we got this question about which species knows more about what or whatever. How do we know any differences we find in cognitive ability may not be due to differences in motivation? Like, think about this. Even within a species, even within a species, I don't know. Um, let's think of a food here. Let's think of a food. No, let's not use and use food. Okay, who, who, who here really likes, uh, uh, you know, those crazy Japanese cartoons with the big eyes? Anime. I knew Spence does, yeah, I knew that. Daniel does. Who hates it? Who hates anime? Okay, and Kayla hates it. This is perfect. So if we were to use, if I was to say, okay, if you do really well, you get a subscription to crunchyroll.com. You know, that's a the Japanese uh, the streaming service. They got all kinds of that crap. If you do, see, I don't like it much. I don't get it. I don't know. They got giant eyes. Ah, 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 and they talk like that. And if you like it, you like it. I mean, I'm not going to argue taste with you because that's stupid. It's why it's called taste. I just don't understand why anybody likes it. Right? Yeah, exactly. So we're on the same page. So you get a free subscription. I'll give you a subscription to Crunchyroll. That's great. People love that stuff. Spence would love you. Probably, hey, you probably have a subscription to that, don't you? No? Okay. I don't. You'd love it, though, wouldn't you? Yeah. Okay. And then I'm going to say, okay, we're going to have a running race between Kayla and Spence. And the winner gets that. Would you be motivated to run fast, Kayla? No, you'd be like, why are we doing this? What's that? He'd be out of the gate. He'd be like, you say Bolt. Okay. Huh. Could we actually conclude that Spence is faster runner? 
Maybe. But maybe not. Maybe it's because there's a motivational difference. And that's just within a species here. We do it between species, right? So you're using, I don't know, peanuts uh, to reinforce some behavior. And you got two different species. Maybe one species doesn't like peanuts as much. Could be. So how do we know some difference isn't just the motivation? So this is something that Bitterman talked a lot about. Bitterman did a lot of comparative work looking at different species and talking about their learning ability. And in a paper in Science, the year I was born, 1965, I believe it was in 65. This is a very streamlined marker. Is dry erase marker? Always check. Because if it's not, I'm not sure. So there's always somebody that writes on one of these with a Sharpie. Cheryl did I know Cheryl did, yeah. That's what happened. Yeah, it was Cheryl. It wasn't me. So, he ended up doing some work and saying and talking about comparing differences and all this stuff. And he said, well, at the top there's people. They can do anything. Yeah. And then below that is monkeys. They aren't as smart. And then you got... Now, he didn't actually say that. He said there's monkey-like learning, and then there's rat-like learning, and then there's pigeon-like learning, and then there's turtle-like learning, and then there's fish-like learning. And if that's not a freaking evolutionary ladder, I don't know what is, but he says it's not. He was criticized right away. Well, you know, a couple years later, Campbell Honus, he's like, no, that's not what I meant. He's like, well, that's what you said. Like, you can actually see the diagram in the paper. It's right there. So, now, he had to do these comparisons, though. This is an interesting idea. What he would do is he would vary the amount of food they were given as reinforcers. So trying to sort of vary it a whole lot, okay, do these different comparative studies. It's, it's got some... I, I see what he was trying to do. His idea, that's just dumb. That's wrong. The idea is dumb. I didn't say he's dumb. He's way more famous than I am. I think it's a stupid idea. He's wrong. So that's, that, that, that's in the 60s. Hamlin Hollis going to say, what's wrong with you people? And even into the 70s, people were like... Yeah, whatever. And they keep kind of doing the same thing. We get into the 80s, and you and McPhail, who's um, a curmudgeonly sort, I will say, it's always been very nice to me, but it seems pretty curmudgeonly. So no, not a word I've ever used. Curmudgeonly. Um, he said, look, in science, we start with the null hypothesis. So if it's going to be comparing species, we say there's no differences. Right? I think we'd all buy that. Sure, it makes sense. So in our case, there's no difference between two species. Oops. Lost my connection. Let's see if I can get it back. 
Oh, I will do. I will go with that. But remember what Bitterman said about motive. Well, Bitterman said about the motivation. He tried varying say, amounts of food, things like that. We have to keep that in mind. So any difference we find could be motivational. So let's say we find a difference between two species of bird. What if it's just a motivational difference? Hmm. That sounds like we should just quit, right? So Al Camel, there's Al Camel right there. It's him holding a Clark's Nutcracker in his lab. And uh, that's how Al dresses all the time. He always has suspenders on. It's just how he dresses. He talks, say, he talks like this. Uh, if any of you ever meet Al Campbell, you will find out gives a very good impression of him. Chances are probably you won't, but if you do, <laughs> you'll say, Broadbeck does a good impression. And he, yeah. Ah, Dave Broadbeck. He always has suspenders on. I wrote the Wikipedia article on Al Campbell. Um, it's a bit of a flaw here in that logic, McPhail. And the flaw is that you set up a null hypothesis you can't reject. Because if I say, I, I found no difference, you go, yeah, well, I found no difference. And I say, I found the difference. You go, well, you can't reject a null hypothesis because it could be motivation. So there's no difference. What? So should we quit science? So the whole notion, the whole theoretical, I guess, background or philosophical background that McPhail has, it's, just, it, it, it's, it's untenable. Because it, it makes it so you can't do experiments. Except you could say humans can have language. McPhail's very big on the idea that there are very few learning mechanisms, or maybe only one. It's one of his things. And he's also big on, and humans are special because of language. Now, I will certainly agree that something pretty special about humans is language. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. And he actually wrote a really good paper about the evolution of language. I posted it on my Facebook a few months ago. But I can also say that the other idea is crazy, and Al's right. If you take 4007, by the way, which some of you will be next term, um, the first paper we read is where Al Campbell lays these ideas out. And we read it because uh, I want to read it. And I want you to read it, so you will read it. And enjoy it. I don't care if you enjoy it, really. But you, it's, it's really good paper. So, what do we do? How do we fix this? Okay, first thing, kind of taking a, an idea from, I hope Al never hears this, kind of taking an idea from Bitterman. Yeah, like Al's going to listen to this because he doesn't know this shit. Uh, kind of taking an idea from Bitterman did a lot of different levels of reinforcement. Al said, instead of that, let's take species and test them on many different tasks. So I don't know if he explicitly took it from Bitterman. Pretty sure he didn't. But the idea here is you test many species on many different tasks. So if we find a similar pattern of differences between species on many different tasks, it would seem unlikely that it would always be the case that motivation would be the culprit. Error should cancel. It's just a statistical thing. So if it was just motivation, sometimes... So they're not motivated for the task or the kind of reinforcer. Well, sometimes species A should be better. Sometimes species B should be better. Right? So that's just logical. 
Because, so like I said, error cancels. And we should start by looking at the life history of an animal, which is a biological thing. So you look at their mating system, you look at their foraging, you look at uh, parental care, you look at their home range size, all these kind of things you would do in zoology. So you're doing biology. You should look at their brains. It's a novel idea. I think, don't brains run behavior? Yeah, so I think we should probably look at any neural differences. And also, of course, we're going to look at behavior and cognition. So it's a synthesis, and in fact, Al calls this the synthetic approach to the study of, of, of uh, animal cognition. Sarah Shuttleworth calls it the ecological approach, because you're looking at the animal's ecology. So, Al, and Al calls the other approach, the, you know, just compare two species and see what happens. He calls that the traditional approach. Sarah calls it the anthropocentric approach which is a little bit provocative, but I think that's good, good for her. I remember when she showed me a paper she wrote, she called that, she said, what do you think? I said, I think you're going to piss a lot of people off by saying that anthropomorphizing. And she said, yeah. <laughs> it's just it's great. One of the things you do as well, so, they, so you look at that and say, what sort of differences would we expect to happen should have evolved and here's a novel idea. Predict something in advance. Instead of saying, hey, look, look what rats can do. That's not, you're not even making any predictions. You're just doing stuff. Right? I'm not saying that the data aren't interesting, but it's like, hey, look, generalization gradient. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Why? Is there any basis for doing this? Or is it just, look what I can do? Well, look what my rats can do. I can just do it. <laughs> right? I would instead say, you know what I think should happen based on the evolutionary history differences between these two species? I think X or Y should happen. What a novel idea. Predictions in science. Who would have thought? When I got to graduate school, the first thing I was, was the first thing that Sarah Shuttleworth did is she had me read the Camel paper. She also had me read the McPhail paper, even though, well, she said to me, have you read the, you and McPhail's paper? And of course, I'm an idiot. Uh-huh. I'm just lying. Stupid idiot. About halfway through the camel paper, I said, "Do you have a copy of that McPhail paper?" I, 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 I probably haven't read it. <laughs> so, the last time I lied to her, um, and I read it, and it totally, it literally—and this may sound silly—but it changed my life because it went. I thought to myself, "This is why I want to do this kind of stuff. I want to find out how cognition evolved. That's, this is cool." And then in night, in, in what year would that have been? That would have been eighty-eight. In eighty, so I was a master's student. It was twenty. Just turned 23. I go to this conference at Dalhousie University. Called, I told you about the conference on cognitive aspects of stimulus control. Sounds pretty exciting. But all the big people were there in animal cognition. Like, it was huge. Like, small conference. 
it was all the top researchers, though. They were invited to give talks. They gave, like, hour-long talks. And then a bunch of graduate students came, and we sort of sat there quietly and soaked it in, right? The first morning, uh, I was having breakfast, and it was me and Sarah, and then Al Campbell was there. I didn't know what any of these guys looked like. And Al was there, and she said, Al, come over here. Uh, I'll introduce my, my graduate student, Dave Broadback. He really likes your synthetic approach paper. And, I, I, and I'm like starstruck. I'm like, that goes away in graduate school, but the first time you meet all these people, you've read all their papers, you're like, wow, it's like I just met the Beatles. You know, it's really a big deal. So... I met him and we talked a little bit. I talked about the kind of stuff I was trying to do for my master's and all that. And then the conference starts. And I'll tell you something. You think a group of first-year university students are unruly and loud and talk during class? Yeah. Just see what it's like when it's a bunch of people that already know each other and already are pretty well known. And they're all actually, almost all, everyone in this field's nice. It's a really, that's one of the cool things about the field I'm in. It's, uh, everybody's nice. There's like two people that aren't nice, but everybody just avoids them. <laughs> There's one guy who, you know, I, I can't, I'll, I'll wait till after the recording's done. Um, <laughs> but I was one of the really nice people. And a guy gets up, speaking, this guy named Mark Rilly, University of Minnesota, I think. Mark's an okay guy. He does really neat work. And he gets up and he says, I really uh, like the approach taken by Ewan McPhail. It's the first thing he says. And Al looks over. He screams across the room, hey, Broadbeck, there's one in every crowd. And I'm like, he's yelling. At Everybody's looking at me. I'm like, oh, God. What have I done? But the funny thing is, Mark laughed. Everybody laughed. Everybody's like, who's Broadbeck? And they're all looking at me. And I'm like, oh, God, I feel like such an idiot. So, yeah, people are just... It's heckling. It's pretty odd. There isn't as much heckling as there used to be. Uh, the crowds at these conferences have become a lot nicer somehow. But this was different. It was like, there was, again, hour-long talks, just invited. It was pretty special. So the nice thing is here, Al's approach says we're going to predict stuff in advance. And we're going to look at an animal we're going to look at the kind of problems it solves in the real world. This might be harder, because usually, if you say, I want to look at how, and we're going to talk, and I'm going to tell you now about the food storing story, that again, a lot of you heard, because you've heard me talk. <laughs> um, part of the reason I talk about food storing is that it's a great story, but also partly it just feeds my gargantuan ego. But, If you're going to do work on food-storing birds, you've got to go get food-storing birds. You can't order rats. <laughs> so you actually have to go trap birds. It's hard. Um, here's, that's a Clark's Nutcracker. That guy stores 20, 30,000 seeds in an area. If you were to draw a circle from here to like Thessalon, draw a circle and store 30,000 things. Little things, little pine seeds, things like that. And don't write it down. And then six months later, I challenge you to find 25,000 of them. Can't do it. Now, of course, humans can write stuff down. Or we can just radioactively label all the seeds. We would know they all were. But Clark's Nutcrackers just find them. 
So this is, and this, that's a Clark's Not Crack. They live in the southwestern states. That's a black cat chickadee. Um, that's what I've studied mostly when I studied food storing stuff years ago. So their uh, black cat chickadees are native to this part of the world, as you know. They store food. They don't migrate. This is why in the in the in the spring, sorry, in the uh, winter, you will hear chickadee calls, chickadee dee dee, right? But you won't hear really a whole lot of other birds. You might hear some blue jays because blue jays are also food stores. You might hear some nuthatches. They're food stores, but you don't hear anything else because everybody else leaves, right? There, you'll also hear me talk about other birds called uh, marsh tits, which look exactly like this and sound just like them. They aren't the same species. They live over uh, in Europe. They're big in the UK, right? Right. So it's chickadee dd instead of chickadee dee. It's a very similar animal. Um, that's uh, Sir John Krebs, Lord of Whiteham. I, I, or as I used to call him, John. Um, he's a member of the British House of Lords. Uh, he's uh, the principal of Jesus College at Oxford. He's kind of an important guy. He's a knight. He's got a sir. He's a knight and a baron and a lord. And he's got a PhD from Oxford. And he's, I think he's probably still a professor in the zoology department at Oxford. He's a very special guy that way. First, he's the guy that... Uh, uh, what the hell? Uh, Tony Blair appointed as the head of his science sort of advisory group to keep mad cow to get rid of mad cow disease in the UK. He's thought of in the UK. He's he's kind of like for biology and a lot of science in the UK. He's like the Neil deGrasse Tyson there. Like when there's a science thing, the BBC call him and say, "What do you think, Baron Lord John Sir?" So he's a big deal also now, not just in regular science, but you know popularizing science because he became this sort of public figure. Um, neat guy. And uh, I had to send him an email once after, that's, PhD, that's my PhD supervisor, Sarah Shuttleworth, walking on South Parks Road at Oxford uh, when Sarah won an award and John helped us get her the award. Like he wrote a supporting thing and I thought, how do you, how do you address him? How do you address a Baron Lord, sir? Because I didn't want to break protocol. I mean, I don't, think much about titles and royalty and all that shit. But I mean, you know, guy is, he's, that's a thing. I agonized, I Googled it. What do you do? You know, is dear, dear Lord John? What? No, I'm not going to call him that. I'm not going to call him dear sir. I've known him since I was in my early 20s. So I just wrote an email, hey John. <laughs> it's hoping nobody get upset. And he's like, yeah, it's so great to hear from you. It's so great to start out with new work. Uh, that's Rob Hampton. He's a buddy of mine from grad school. He was one of her graduate students as well. He's holding a warthog skull. Because that's the kind of thing Rob does. He was on his honeymoon in Tanzania. And that's David Sherry. And some of his old graduate students. You'll hear about him too. Okay. So, it's probably the best example ever of using this the synthetic approach. That's why I want to talk about this thing. It's... It uses it perfectly. Before we even knew it was called the synthetic approach, this was, it's almost, and Al Campbell's one of the people who's doing this kind of work. So it starts out with Anderson and Krebs. Uh, John Krebs, there he is, right? He would have been probably a, just starting out then. Yeah. 
John's probably about, how old would John be? He's probably about 15 years older than I am. So, my God, is he really? He makes it like 65. Yeah, it's probably about right. That's not old. Well, uh, I remember him being 35. That's all, or 40. I'm, I'm older than that, so that's not old. I still, I don't think of him that way. I haven't actually seen the guy. Except on TV, because I watch BBC sometimes. And then it's John Cray. Hey, this is the guy. So Anderson and Krebs wrote a paper in 1978. They did a mathematical model. So remember, these guys, these guys are behavioral ecologists. Doing a mathematical model of when food storing should evolve. Because food storing is fascinating behavior. These birds store food. They don't fly away. They store food, and they recover it hours or days later for consum- future consumption, which is, I believe, the opening sentence of like four papers I've written. Uh, food storing can only evolve if you recover your own caches. It's the only way it can evolve. Think about this. People used to think food storing was communal. That everybody stores, everybody recovers. Now, here's the counterexample to that. What if a lazy gene (coughs) shows up? A gene that says, I'm not going to store, I'm just going to recover. That one wins, doesn't it? Why does it win? Because he still gets all the food that everybody's storing. And also, while you're out... Storing food? Uh, I don't know. I'll have sex with your wife. You know what I mean? Like, so <laughs> you got time to do other stuff. My gene spreads, food storing disappears. However, if we're all, being, we're all selfishly fight, recovering our own seeds, it can evolve, right? Makes sense. So how can we test that our birds in the wild recovering their own seeds? Now, I showed you David Sherry before. Sherry Avery and Stevens in 1981. This is in Whiteham Wood, and that's why John is Lord Baron of Whiteham. It's just outside Oxford. And I love that they call it wood, not woods. It's so British and cool. It's Whiteham Wood. Very good, yes. Find some mouse tits. Excellent. <laughs> and they took uh, pine seeds, and they radioactively labeled them. Not enough that their birds are going to get sick. I think it's going to hurt the environment. But enough that you can find it with a guy you can so the birds, they just put these things out, and the birds take them and store them. That's what they do. That's their job. Now, the nice thing is now you can find out where the seeds are. So the next day, you go out and go, okay, where are the seeds? And you find a seed, you do a little guy, guy your counter thing, makes that noise. Point it at it, and they go, oh, here it is. I'm going to move this one 30 centimeters. And then the next one you find, I'll leave that where it is. The next one you find, I'll move it 10 centimeters. Yes, do they only hide their seeds like in trees? Or is there a lot of trees, moss, mostly trees. Not usually on the ground. Sometimes the ground. Uh, though they will sometimes, I know marsh tits at least, will sometimes store in moss that's on the ground. Yep, that's a good question. So then you come back a couple weeks later and find out which seeds are still there. The ones that are still there are the ones that have been moved. The ones that haven't been moved are gone. Now, if everybody's recovering each other's seeds, it shouldn't matter if you moved it, right? But if you're only recovering your own seeds where you remember where they are, you should. The ones that haven't moved, the only ones that are going to move. The other ones, they, they missed them, 10 centimeters away. They couldn't find them. Huh. So they are recovering their own seeds. So they're using, how are they doing this, of course, is the next question. And a sensible answer and an answer we'll get into next time, is that they're using memory. How do we know they're using memory? 
Well, it was eventually proved, Shuttleworth and Krebs 82, they're using memory, but also, how the hell else would they do it? Smell? Birds, diurnal birds don't, aren't very good at smelling, right? They have to remember where they put them. And it's pretty precise, obviously, because if you move it this far, 10 centimeters, like, well, I don't know where it is. And we'll continue talking about that stuff. That's fine. That's fine. Oh, yeah, one back. because I'm reserving that right, giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.